Hello, Internet. My name is Walter Ciades Fedchuk, and welcome back to the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, do you want to apologize for the uh, absence that we had? Um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes things happen in life, and uh, a podcast uh, is the least important thing to take care of. Uh, so once again, we appreciate your uh, patience with us as we did get this episode out. Listen, uh, you know, radioactive poisoning from uh, from a nuclear bomb testing is not fun to deal with. Um, but I do believe, Chase, perhaps you can, you know, tell us some more about the event that you were at. Besides catching COVID, how was KCON? <laughs> Yeah, man. I first of all happy to be back. Um, I wish I was at a hundred percent. I apologize uh, to anyone listening for any coughs and sniffles that do come my way. This is way better than I've been, which is to say, not far enough for my liking. But say la vie. Uh, KCon was fantastic. Um, I went with a friend of the pod, Kristen Pignolo. Uh, we had a great time. It was my first time seeing her in person in four years, so always a pleasure to get to do that. Um, we had a big like board game night with friends here in LA on Saturday, Friday, the, the night that she came in, we, we went to the Getty center. So we got to, she got to flex all of her art history knowledge. Uh, and then the shows were just fantastic. Um, the way they do it essentially at KCON, which I, I did not realize what I was heading into going in, but it makes sense because otherwise these concerts would be like eight hours long. Uh, every group gets two, maybe three songs depending on how popular the group is. The headliner, I think, got a whole four songs. Um, every once in a while, they'll have like a skit thing through, thrown in there. They had something called a dream stage where a bunch of people who knew the choreography to an iconic song from one of the groups could like go on stage for part of it and perform in front of, you know, the Staples Center, which is its real name. Don't look it up. Um, and, uh, you know, I think being able to say you perform in front of 30,000 people is a pretty good uh, kind of warm-up uh, fact about yourself at every icebreaker you ever go to for the end of time. So cool for those people. Um, but it was just, it was really, really fun. Um, the first day was really the story of uh, Tae Young from NCT uh, completely winning the crowd um, with just this like cocky, like I'm the greatest and I know it attitude that everyone was eating up. And then Taemin, uh, formerly of, of Shiny, uh, comes on and I just steals the night. Just this kind of effortless cool that uh, permeated the stage. Everyone lost their minds. It was the only time the entire weekend that I heard a name chant of of like a group or individual. He got a full on Taman chant for like thirty seconds. It was fantastic. Um, and then the Sunday night was even crazier as far as Chris and I goes because we had a lot of our favorite groups there. Everglow is back. Thank God they've finally been left out of whatever dungeon their agency had had them in for the last year. And they have new music and it was great. Um, and uh, Idol was there. And I love Soyan very much. I wish their song selection was different, but I get it. Um, I just, you couldn't have done I Do, right? You just did that with 88 Rising. It feels like that was right there. But whatever, it's fine. Like, you're still really fun to watch. I don't care. Um, and then Stray Kids um, did, like, a special segment. Um, they won the night for sure. They're the biggest boy group active right now. Um, but they did a segment in which they played their very first comeback, 
which the real diehard Rough Drafts people might remember as my entrance song for the one-on-one Echo tournament we did way back in the day, uh, District 9. So I, I lost my mind at that. That was a real pleasure. Um, so yeah, it was just a really fun sequence of, uh, of performers. You know, you, you don't get that many groups performing in such a short period of time and so many groups that might not ever tour the U.S. at all, uh, let alone in this kind of capacity. Um, really thought when I didn't have a voice on Monday and Tuesday that I had just gone a little bit too hard, being too excited for my faves. And uh, nope, uh, turns out COVID makes fools of us all, um, despite the fact that uh, Kristen and I masked, which is, I guess, my PSA to all of you listening, uh, wear your goddamn mask. There are like three different COVID strains going on right now. If you're in public places, try to take care of each other, you know? We, uh, we kind of have to, because <laughs> heaven knows we're not getting it from anyone in a position of power. So um, do your best out there. I hope you all uh, stay safe and don't have to deal with the COVID that I did, because fuck that, man. Or don't catch COVID and hope it kills you before your uh, student loan payments restart in October. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, that is a strategy. You caught me off guard on that one. That is indeed a strategy. <laughs> the cough laugh work, works absolutely, uh, absolutely perfectly there. Well, but I am, I'm glad you guys had a lot of fun. I know, um, you know, none of those, those artist names really mean anything to me because I just don't follow K-pop in any way, shape or form. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad you guys had a lot of fun and I'm, I'm glad you got to go to the Getty. That is like one of the one of the things that the couple of times I went to Los Angeles when I lived in Vegas, like I wish I had been listening to Knowledge Fight then because I would have gone to the Getty. That would have been something I did. The only like L.A. thing that I really did was uh, I hiked to the Hollywood side. So that was, you know, that was one of those things. I'll, I'll have to go back to L.A. someday. Uh, but Chase, this is not a Los Angeles tourism or K-pop podcast. This is a movie podcast, and you know, after after Barbenheimer, um, I don't know if we really had like any real direction. I I think we kind of were like, okay, two really kind of intense, you know, weeks, uh, movies, like crazy, uh, publicity and pressure on it, all of these things, and we just needed something to kind of unwind with, and you hit me with this curveball. That I don't, I didn't expect. Like, I had no idea. I, I had no idea. I had no other options for anything. And you're like, well, why don't we watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem? And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so, Chase, why, why did this come up? Why, were, why did you decide that you wanted this to be the, the front film that we did after sort of the, the Barbenheimer double feature? Well, first of all, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were a uh, core staple of my uh, childhood. Uh, shout out to uh, Mikey. Um, he had, uh, you know, he was our, our uh, nerd of the group. Um, I believe he's the nerd of the group. God, if I will embarrass myself um, by getting him confused with Donatello already, this will be a really bad start. Raphael was the one with the red banner, and so therefore I was always going to be a fan of him. Um, but overall, it's just a really fun concept, right? Here are turtles. Let's give them kung fu powers. Go team. What more do you need, right? Uh, perfect concept. Well executed. 
Um, but when I was looking at like films to watch, right, I, I would not have initially picked a, a Nickelodeon film, but I, I looked at the tomato meter. It has 97% for the critics right now. Um, fans were going wild for it. And it was a film that you could already tell early on was getting lost at the box office because Barbie Heimer was such a force of nature, right? Um, we saw the same thing happen with Mission Impossible, a film that we both liked, um, but ended up not doing as well at the box office as you would think, because Oppenheimer took the um, IMAX uh, kind of film locations, and, and suddenly there were the, the, the high-profile screenings that it had been relying on were no longer there. And so... I didn't want this one to fall through the cracks. I'm like, you know, this seems like a well-executed film um, doing something different with its animation style. has a bunch of uh, talented people working on it. Sure, more pop culture references than I probably need in my average film nowadays, but there was enough here that I didn't want to lose this one in the shuffle. And I guess minor spoiler alert for the end of this podcast, I'm glad that we didn't. I'm glad we went and saw this one because I do think it's worth remembering. You say that, Chase. Oh, no. <laughs> well, so here, here's the thing. Um, I, I don't have much uh, attachment to the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, like I remember watching the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, show that was like the Fox Four Kids show. Um, but it, it definitely wasn't like my my track, right? I was more of a, let me watch, you know, the Batman stuff. Let me watch Spider-Man. Let me watch Justice League. I was a big like Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon guy. Um, you know, you had the Cartoon Network stuff. Like we didn't have cable until I was probably like 12. Um, so we really kind of relied on like Sunday mo- or Saturday morning cartoons on like CBS, ABC. And then once we got cable, it was like this shift towards more Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and kind of that golden age of of uh, cartoons that in that regard and i just never really never was a teenage mutant ninja turtle guy to the point where like i i couldn't even tell you without looking it up um that no that donatello is the nerd and he wears a purple bandana and uses a bow staff i literally have to look at the wikipedia page to tell me that um but i was like hey cool whatever like I'm, I'm willing to watch it. It looked cool, right? The, the art style, and I think that's probably where we'll kind of veer off towards first. It was really cool. It was a really cool looking movie. Um, it sounded like the turtles were like kids. Like this wasn't an adult, like super adult thing. Which you know, going and, and doing a little bit of research after the fact that it was, they chose some teenage voice actors to do it. And the other interesting thing I, I found out in my reading was that they had them all in the same room when they did the recording. And that's sort of what lends itself to this like overlapping dialogue and jumping on top of each other with voice lines, which um, I know in some of the reviews that I've read, people found was distracting and, and kind of frustrating for them, but I, I didn't. I'm like, yeah, that's how kids act. Like, did you guys not remember being in like middle school? Like that's exactly how kids act. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Looks cool. It's got a whole bunch of people in it. You know, Seth Rogen. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess I could look at the entire cast list because we got, this is a cast list, man. You got Maya Rudolph. You got John Cena. You got Seth Rogen. You got Rose Bryan. Uh, Natasha Demero, who I don't really know. Giancarlo Esposito is in it. Jackie Chan, Ice Cube, Paul Rudd. Like, so many people in this fucking movie. Um, so yeah, like, cool. Let's give it a shot. 
Um, and that is where we will start is the art style because I have I have admitted on this podcast that I'm not the biggest like animation guy, you know, computer generated, you know, primary form of media. Like I I kind of like real life people acting, right? And I'm much more I like older style. Like I'm not a huge CGI person either. I prefer more like practical effects, and that is you know I know that's sort of like a bygone thing that we don't see anymore. Um, but what about this art style chase that grabbed onto you and that was kind of like the trigger point of like, yes, I want to watch this because of the art. I think one of the things that we're seeing pushback on, right, is for a while, every animated film felt the need to do the Pixar thing, right? It was very clean. It was very crisp. It was very um, light. You know, you, you, you have this... Um, almost like Apple-esque mentality to character design where everything is very easily pronounced and feels like you could kind of cut it out and, and put it on a, a wall somewhere and it's just perfectly um, perfectly proportioned, perfectly built. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like there are a lot of very good Pixar films that um, take advantage of that style, but when it becomes everything, you end up losing something, right? Um, you want to have a diverse range of animation styles in order to um, have different ways of telling different types of stories, right? You know, on, on a very base level, I think we all understand this, right? You would not want a Punisher or Ghost Rider comic to look like a Spider-Man or Iron Man comic, right? They have different tones. They have different objectives. You are trying to accomplish different things, and the style of the art should match that. And I felt like the style of the art for this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film really matches what makes them great, uh, which is that they're gross turtle boys. Um, this is like the, the, the city that they're in is New York and there's grime to it and there's mess and um, they're living in the sewers, which are not the cleanest place to live. And they are, you know, mutant turtles, which means that they don't have the most natural... Uh, proportions and they they have these like different little details to them obviously they're still our protagonists so they're still relatively like um you know marketable so to speak but the way that the lines go right the way that it defines muscles the way that it defines movement there are there's texture there um it's 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 not clean and it's not trying to be um and as a result you get like these really interesting shading elements, right? The way lighting is done in this film is very different. The way that you'll get like these multiple different lines of, of like uh, almost like it is being drawn in front of you, like a fluorescent light. You can see like these individual brush strokes, so to speak, um, rather than it being this perfect fluorescent lamp. Um, you can see the scratches in the turtle shells if it has been etched. Um, you get these monsters, you know, these these bad guys, right? The gangsters who have, like, misshapen noses and all this, like, you know, a cheek that really gets bruised in and, like, scars and all of this that's, like, they feel like lived-in characters in a world that is different from our own and in a way that matches the idea of a teenage mutant ninja turtle. All of these mutants should have an edge to them. They should feel like they have come 
out of the ooze itself to exist. Um, and I think they do. I, I think the, the style does a really good job of, of bringing those points to the surface and adding a layer of texture to everything that I think goes a long way. I think texture is actually a, a great word for this because there is something that is very like drawn and very... I'm going to use the word immature. Um, not not as a negative here, but there is something here that is like a a purposeful lack of refinement, right? It is not this gorgeously painted... We're not watching a Miyazaki movie here, right? We're watching, as you said, this sort of dirty, grimy New York City sewer, and we're talking about mutants. We're not talking about mutants like X-Men. We're talking about actual, like, animal mutants that are, like, disgusting abominations of what they, like, normal animals would look like, right? We're not looking at a rhinoceros. We're looking at this mutated rhino hybrid thing, right? And the, the art style is, there is a, a darkness to it. You know, across the entire uh, entire animation style that lends itself to, you know, hiding, right? Hiding from everybody else, hiding from humanity. You know, when you're looking at most scenes where you're not dealing with the, the human world, so to speak, it is very dark. There is not a lot of lighting. And it's when there is sort of humanity around that it brightens up and it goes, well, this is like the real world. This is what the turtles want to live in. They want to be where the people are, to quote the Little Mermaid, weirdly enough. Um, and and this, this art and this film does such a fantastic job of portraying this and sort of adapting the setting for what, what actors, what characters are there to sort of give this night and day difference of, you know, being in the sewers and being on your own and, um, you know, not being accepted by everyone else and then being accepted by everyone else and, you know, being part of humanity and being in the light and being in the neon lights of Times Square. So it does do a, a fantastic job in that regard. Well, and I think something that's really cool, and hopefully I remember to link this, but, you know, there's a, a shot right there at the top of the roof and they're filming Raphael doing some tricks um, as they try to, like, you know, do like a cool compilation the way that you know, the kids trying to get on TikTok, you know, that, that classic style, right? And you look at the record button on the right side of the screen, and, and it's not a record button, right? It, it is a, a hand-drawn button, and you can see the places in which it is not fully colored in. Same with the lighting effect on the right side. You can see, like, little spaces where the color isn't fully there. It's super easy, right, to make a photorealistic representation of what a phone looks like, but it would be out of place if you had these really clean, crisp lines and these really clean, crisp buttons in the world that they've built here. And so they don't. They don't make it look as clean and as crisp and as, as realistic as it could be. Uh, the fluorescent lights and the smoke effect here, there are so many things you look at and you know we have the technology to make it look as close to photorealistic as they wanted it to, but they didn't want it to because there's so much more charm in the button that looks like it was drawn by, you know, a 15-year-old doing their best to do like a perfect circle, right? It, it's more interesting that the buttons aren't the same size on each side and 
you know, the, the red square at the top is not a perfect rectangle. Like, it's, I don't know, there's something really charming about that in a, a world in which stuff like Pixar has dominated so much of the animated market for years. Yeah, I, charming is, is such an excellent and, and more positive way to use it. You know, homemade. <laughs> Um, instead of being like, it's immature, like I'm some <laughs> stupid art critic, um, which, which is like, it, it helps disarm you and makes you not want to be super critical of the film because it reminds you like, hey, this is, this is like a kid's film, right? And, and I'm not saying that negatively. This isn't, you know, a Paw Patrol movie, right? This is, <laughs> this is like still Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We're talking preteens, teenage, uh, you know, characters here. And... It's funny you bring up the cell phone because as part of our pre-call, we like go through things uh, things we want to talk about. And you briefly mentioned that it's like this modern setting. And I, I do think there is something to it. There is something very interesting about comparing it to, okay, well, like, this is how I watched this character back in the early 2000s, right? Like, cell phones, you know, I, I, re- I went back and I watched um, the Mighty Ducks animated series, right? And like there, there's like cell phones, but it's like it's a hockey puck that like unfolds, and it's like a walkie-talkie. It's not really like a cell phone. And now here we are, twenty years later, watching a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie, and like even the turtles in the fucking sewer have smartphones. And it's yeah. just it's it's fun to see characters from my childhood be placed into a modern setting, and what how those characters would interact with these certain. Yeah, it certainly creates a very um, a very fun dynamic, right? Because you understand immediately these elements that uh, feel in, uh, intrinsic and obvious, maybe to a um, to an adult watching this film, but to kids, maybe uh, is the first time they're experiencing some of these dynamics play out in a, in a real way. You know, you have these clips, right, of them doing all this cool martial arts stuff. But ultimately, that is not the same as being accepted by society because people are going to say, oh, it's CGI. Oh, they use some special effect. Oh, they're just in cosplay, right? They won't believe the real thing until they see it. Those videos can be cool special effects things that go on YouTube. But unlike, you know, a decade ago where I think something like this would have been, and then they all go super mega viral because anyone... Like, a turtle doing martial arts would be crazy. Like, we're not in that environment in the internet world anymore. And so, you know, this is there to add flavor, because of course they would want to be doing these highlight things, but it's not the plot. It's not, technology is not being used purely to further the narrative. It's being used to fill in the color of the world, because if you had these turtle brothers, of course they would want to be doing cool stunts like all of their favorite YouTubers because that's the age that they are. That's the stuff that they're taking in. That's just how the world works. Um, you get the same thing with April O'Neil, right? And she has that kind of viral incident of, of vomiting on, you know, doing the news broadcast, right? And, you know, in a normal world from like 20 years ago, right? That would have been a singular moment and she would have been made fun of for it, but eventually it kind of goes away and now it lives on the internet forever. She can never escape and she knows it. And there's something very different about seeing a character struggle with that, right? Because there are always going to be kids who are growing up watching this film who recognize that something that is on the internet 
and will likely always be on the internet, is something that they find a little bit embarrassing. Because all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have some things on the internet that we're a little bit embarrassed by. Um, and I think it's cool to have a world that acknowledges this and adapts to it and makes it just part of the set dressing rather than trying to make it the whole reason we're here. Which is, I think, where some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films have kind of tripped over themselves in the past. Now, does it mean we get a lot of pop culture references that are very hit and miss and will likely not age as well as the film itself? Why, yes, I don't think that calling Drake the goat of all time is going to be a quote that we all look fondly back on a decade from now, right? Uh, you know, I might be a K-pop guy, but I don't think them failing to sing along to Butter is going to be like some iconic moment uh, a decade from now, right? This is very much a, a movie that's trying to capture a time, but maybe that's enough, you know? Maybe that's... It, maybe not every film has to live forever. Some of them can be an enshrinement of a moment in culture, and I think that this one does that pretty well, honestly. I, I think there's nothing wrong with that of being a time capsule for the time. Like, think about how many, you know, late 80s, early 90s movies you go back to. I love Short Circuit, right? Short Circuit is an incredible film, but you go back and all of the pop culture references are from that time period. So I don't understand any of them. And it's one of those things that are sort of like a phenomenon of, of joking about how like, oh, parents go see kids movies with their kids and there's like jokes sprinkled in for them. And like, that's what seeing this film is, is like there are these sort of things that are going to be, you know, reminiscent to us as, you know, older adults, right? Older millennials and be like, oh yeah, man, I remember like the first time, you know, a cell phone came out, like that was wild, right? All these little things. And that's going to be something that, the the younger generation, I, I, Gen Z, I guess, that this film is kind of built for, like, they'll be able to remember those things fondly. And and I will say, though, like, I disagree that April's moment would have, like, eventually faded into time. Like, no, she would have gone to her 10-year ten, ten reunion if she was our age and would have been like, oh, remember that time you puked on the morning announcements? Yeah, that was funny. Like, but it wouldn't follow her globally, essentially. It, it would be sort of very confined to just like the people that went to her school and maybe like a couple of younger classmen and like things like that. But it would kind of be centralized in this like one, you know, one little ecosystem, you know, one school district essentially versus, you know, playing on YouTube for the world to see. Um, I also think like the turtles doing the martial arts and stuff like I, I find it very interesting, the portrayal of Splinter uh, played by Jackie Chan is that it's not that he was like, oh, I was already this like great martial artist. It was like, oh no, I was a dad that got scared and like attacked in Times Square and like wanted to learn how to protect myself and my kids. So I started watching like Kung Fu movies and like self-defense videos. And like, that's what they're emulating, right? They're emulating, you know, Crouching Tiger, Heron and Dragon. They're not, you know, doing something cool necessarily because they saw, you know, someone on tiktok do it right like they're doing it because this is like what they know and what they've grown up around um what did you think of that portrayal of splinter because because i was like a little mixed on it at the beginning of the movie i mean it's a very interesting take and i think it's one that is uh both cynical and fair right um th this film very much takes the idea that like no one would actually accept 
these turtles for who they were until they've proven themselves to be something other than monsters doing kung fu. And like, yeah, that is reflective of the world we live in today. There are certainly a lot of people being different that we don't do a great job of accepting as a whole in society. There are a lot of um, ecosystems online that are driven to uh, drive up hate of those who are different and those who don't immediately fit in. Um, there's a lot of allegories there that are very obvious that are also very reasonable. Um, and the idea of Splinter going up in the New York trying to fit in and being immediately horrified by these people who wanted to attack him and going into protective mode, I think that makes sense, right? It, it's very much an accelerated and heightened version of something that I think every parent deals with, right? Which is the fear of seeing their kids grow up and knowing that they can't protect them forever. Um, that's the kind of the underlying thing that forever uh, plagues Splinter is, is understanding that um, they are teenagers and teenagers eventually grow up and don't live at home anymore. And he is not going to know that they're going to be okay because not everybody is, right? People have bad things happen and them being different the way that they are is a risk. And him learning to let go of that, I think, is a very classic trope. Um, and kids who are trying to learn the importance of being independent and stepping out of their parents' shadow and navigating this understanding that, like, my parents can mean the best for me and still be afraid for me and still struggle with this even though they love me is a good thing to hit. I think it's, it's, a, it's a fine narrative to come to. I think there are certain parts of it that get a little bit weird. Um, it's so pronounced that it inherently leads to us being like, well, now you're trying to get in the way of the movie, though, um, which you never really want um, to be, like, rooting against Splinter in that way. Um, you know, the, the goal is to have the moments where, like, he tries to throw them the pizza party and they bounce and he doesn't understand why. And it's just the parent, like, like those moments of, of empathy in which he is not with them but not against them are, are the places where that kind of story is the strongest. Um, but it also means that, like, for the plot to go the way that it needs to, he kind of turns around on things pretty quickly. There's a, a very weird cut, and I, I almost feel like there was a scene that was missing in which he kind of picks them up from this facility that they were trapped in and is like, so now we're going home, say goodbye to April because this adventure is done. And then they immediately go to Superfly's base, and suddenly he's on board with them facing this dangerous mutant um, because it's the thing that needs to get done. And so that side of things gets rushed, and of course they have to have, like in the closing, like, oh, it turns out that they actually are liked because they did a heroism, and that's enough, um, which is maybe putting a little bit more of a uh, a nice bow on it than would have been ideal in a more nuanced narrative. But I don't know. It does what it needs to do. Um, and I think it's something that kids will be able to latch onto in some healthy ways. So I have no problem with it. For a kid's movie, that like narrative of like, oh, you have to do something to like earn your your acceptance is like, okay, like I get it. It's a pretty one note story. But, like, if that was an adult story, right, if we're talking about this for adults and being like, oh, you're only worth, like, what you do for other people, that's pretty fucking horrific. Like, I actually don't think that's a great message 
if you're trying to be anything more than like a superhero kind of one note thing, right? Like there's way too much gray in there. And I think just in like reality of the universe of like, there's plenty of people that do, you know, good things for other people that aren't accepted, you know, across the board, there is a lot of bigotry and I do find it a little bit whitewashing and, and kind of hiding the truth from from kids and and maybe I'm someone that believes maybe we should treat kids in certain regards a little bit more like adults especially in topics you know kind of like this like yeah no like sometimes people just aren't going to be accepted you know for for a variety of reasons right and you know my only hope is that as a parent I can teach you to accept people for you know, all the right reasons. And if you are excluding someone or you're not including someone or you're rejecting someone, it is for a good reason, right? And not just that they're a mutant turtle that knows Kung Fu coming out of the sewer. Although I'm pretty sure in the real world, if that happened, might be telling my kids, hey, uh, stranger danger, walk away from that. Going back to the splinter side of things, there is this like weird weirdness about the character of oh i'm gonna teach them how to do like kung fu and protect themselves but i'm also gonna be uh, agoraphobic and we're not gonna go outside unless it's like to pick up groceries it's just bizarre to me that you would give them the tools to protect themselves but then would be very 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 strict in terms of like okay you can only go to the corner store and get groceries and then come right back home it is this sort of lack of trust. And I get, they're still kids. Cool. Understand. But there is this moment where, like, as a parent, you go, okay. And I'm not a parent, but, you know, theoretically speaking, as a parent, you go, like, okay, you're the right age where you have a cell phone now. You know how to ride a bike. You know how to, like, you know, look both ways for traffic. Cool. You can ride your bike to the library. You know, just let me know when you leave and be back in two hours. Right? Like, that type of thing. And it seems like that never really happens in this film that Splinter's like, cool, go experience some things. And maybe it's very on the nose that the movie that they watch in Central Park that, you know, is, is this movie in the park is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. Which is I, this like ultimate expression of freedom. I mean, it's an all or nothing, right? Like he's unwilling to let them explore. And then by the end, it's important for them to explore. And he lets them go off to school and everything's good now. Like that's... There is a black and white to it, and I think that your other criticism is is fair along that line as well, right? It's a very, like, either society will accept you because you do good things, or society won't accept you because they don't understand that you can do good things, and there's no real gray area for the... And some people are just kind of assholes, and some people are really cool no matter what, and... All of that is part of this weird thing we call life. Um, it's not a particularly nuanced narrative. I, I don't think it's inherently wrong. Like, I, I do think that, like, you know, teaching people that actions speak louder than words, and if you do good things, then people, the right people will notice. I, I don't think that's inherently a negative thing, and I, I don't think that it's inherently an inaccurate concept. But I do think that if you're looking for nuance in your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, I think you're going to be at the wrong place. Um, and I, I think that this is definitely a film in which maybe those gray areas um, could have been explored and could have been interesting, but 
are put to the wayside because we've got some mutants that we need to go meet and hang out with and learn about their black and white mentality um, that needs to be unpacked. Well, exactly. And the mutants, Superfly and his crew, it is very black and white. Although, again, it's more about Superfly being black and white and being his group's equivalent of Splinter of, I'm trying to protect you. You need to listen to me. I'm the one who knows best. And him being like, well, the best response is we got to kill all the humans, or I guess in this case, turn them all into mutants or turn all the animals into mutants and then, you know, subjugate or kill all the humans, right? Like that's what it comes down to. And he does, he has this moment. And that's sort of the moment where Splinter gets it is when he makes this quote of like, I know what's best. You need to listen to me, which is the exact same phrasing that Splinter used early on to try and scare the boys into not going out and experiencing the real world and not interacting with humanity. Um, Was there a particular mutant that you liked the best? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, if it comes to, like, my favorite mutants, um, Paul Rudd's Mondo Gecko, who's just rad and chill, very fun, very silly. Um, I do like Rocksteady and Bebop inherently. I think John Cena and Seth Rogen play off each other really well. Um, Leatherhead's very fun. The Mutant Alligator by Rose Byrne. I think that's a very fun choice. And hey, I thought Post Malone did, did a pretty good job as Ray Filet. Fun name for a mutant Ray. But ultimately, right? Like the 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 moral of the story here uh, is about uh, Superfly. It, it is this idea that these mutants have all been kicked to the curb. They've all had the same experience that Splinter did. The world will not accept them. And, you know, this is the assimilation versus fighting back kind of argument taken to an extreme cartoonish kind of extent, right? Um, If you do not believe that society will accept you for who you are, then you make society accept you for who you are. In this case, that's turning everyone else into mutants, um, fighting for mutant supremacy, one could say. Um, it is, and it, you know, one of those things that's easy to empathize with, right? Because you need all of these mutants, and you can understand why they would gravitate to someone like a Superfly, right? If they didn't have anyone to protect them, like the way Splinter did, then Superfly is someone who will protect them, someone who will look out for them and, and tell them that they deserve nice things, despite the way the world treats them and and that kind of camaraderie is important and and valuable and intoxicating. There's a reason that people like that are are so good at forming kind of cults of personality and whatnot, because they'll take something that is real, the idea that society has left these people behind and turn it into something dangerous um, that furthers their own independent ends. And that's, Ultimately, why it's so easy for all of the other mutants than Superfly to be converted right away to like, maybe we don't need to kill all the humans. Like, maybe we can just hang out with these turtle bros who tell us that there's another way. Um, it's a little bit anticlimactic to a certain extent because it feels like we've got this real mutant versus mutant fight scene coming up and then suddenly it's everyone versus Superfly. But at the same time, it is, while it is simple, it does allow us to kind of highlight the idea of 
people who want to be accepted because they have been left behind and people who want to be accepted because they believe that they should be superior to other people. He is the superfly. He's not just a mutant fly. He is the superfly. Um, so I don't know. It's another one of those things that I think uh, some really interesting concepts getting simplified for a kid's narrative in a way that they probably didn't need to do, but certainly needed to do if they wanted to keep a one hit hundred minute runtime, which this film neatly clocks in on. Well, you, you kind of have to keep it short for kids, right? Like you can't do a three hour Dune epic for kids, right? Their their attention spans are not going to last that long, and. And I'm not even trying to be, like, ageist in that regard. It's like, I just, I don't think any kid wants to sit in one spot for three hours to, to engage with something, right? I think that's why so many cartoons, you know, Sunday morning cartoons were a half an hour. Other than, you know, oh, well, we can jam more content in, which means that we can create more merchandise and, like, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, yeah, it, it does come back to this, like, simplification of these rather like more adult themes right and 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 things that like you are going to go through as you grow up and acceptance and understanding people are different than you and how do you handle those types of things but like at its core the the reasoning behind why you aren't accepting is very adult right i think a lot of us as little kids you know it was we we didn't let somebody into our playgroup because they were mean to us right like one time they took my toy from me right it wasn't oh, well, that person is a different color than me or that person, you know, likes, is a boy and likes boys. Like, I don't think we as kids understand those concepts then. But then as you get older, like all of a sudden, all the differences are taught to you and you have, whether it's YouTube algorithms or or your family or your other friends or any of these things, you know, this usage of separation that, yeah, maybe, you know, a hundred minute long cartoon movie isn't the best medium for having that in-depth conversation but it can at least give you a spark notes of it right it can at least be like hey maybe we shouldn't be judgmental of people just because they're different maybe we should be judging people by their actions and ultimately like that's why everybody turns against superfly is because he's like nah we gotta kill them all and like they're everybody's like what if we don't and he's like, nah, but we got to kill everybody. And they're like, right, right. But like, what if we didn't have to do that? He's like, nah, you're wrong. I know better. And it's like, well, how do you know better? There, There is an authenticity throughout this film that I think does ring true. You know, whatever like depth issues you, you may find. And that's certainly uh, of the criticisms that were there. That's the, the one that I think critics were uh, the most in line with. Um, but what they do have has a lot of heart to it. You know, people have uh, pointed out that there, you, you know, you could look at Splinter's story uh, mirroring a first-generation parent moving to the United States, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, as people who found something in that, I think that's great. Um, it was something that they ultimately said they didn't necessarily plan, you know, wasn't originally set out to be an immigration fable, but as the story developed itself, it made sense and they leaned into it because that's just a thing that people feel, right? That's That's speaking to a truly human emotion and it comes through as a result and the characters are stronger for it. Um, you know, this theme of isolation and acceptance is one that um, obviously, uh, you know, anyone's going to, to face at that kind of age, but it's different than, 
you know, maybe the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have been in the past, right? This is one in which there is much more of a longing to be able to fit in and belong rather than just, hey, we're doing our cool Ninja Turtle stunts and Cowabunga dude, skateboard, extreme fun stuff. Um, it's different and it feels real and you feel for these kids as they're trying to find their place in things. and You, you feel for, um, you know, Donatello uh, and, and Leonardo uh, as, you know, get, you know, Leonardo especially trying to lead these brothers um, and they resent him for sometimes for his attempt at maintaining this responsibility and he knows that he has to be that voice when Splinter isn't there and eventually they learn to find the value in that but it is something that they have to come to, you know, it's something that is built through experience and being able to learn when to push, when to let go, it's being a leader and anyone who's ever been put in a leadership position can empathize with the, the back and forth struggles there. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of heart in this film and it's, it's the reason that I think um, I'm happy that it uh, did as well as it did, even if I, I think it obviously got hampered a little bit by Barbie mania. Um, I think there's a, a lot of things this film does get right, even if it, doesn't go as deep under the surface as it could. I think that's fair. And I think that is, that is something that, you know, when I do my final rating, it is going to become pretty clear that I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it. Like I don't want to spoil the, the final bit because I, there is like one last little piece to this film, right? And we, we talk about the turtles and we talk about, you know, their relationship with Splinter and their relationship with humanity and then we, the, you know, the mutants and their interaction with the turtles and their interaction through humanity and with Superfly. And then there's April. And April is there to be the chronicler, essentially, right? They bump into her accidentally throwing a, a ninja star that, uh, a shuriken that lands in her helmet and then her moped gets stolen while they're talking to her because she's yelling at them for throwing a ninja star at them. And then, like, that's their first hero moment. They're, they're rescuing a cat from the tree. That's their first instance of helping someone. And then she doesn't, like, immediately, immediately freak out. Like, there's, she doesn't pass out and, like, they have to revive her or anything. She's just like, oh, shit. Y'all are actually turtles. But she gives them the time of day, right? And lets them explain and lets them show who they are to her. And she's like, okay, yeah, you're weird, but like, I'm weird too. Like, cool, here's my phone number. Text me and we'll, we'll talk. Because I'd love to tell your story and I'd love to help you find out who Superfly is and help you guys redeem yourself because as you said earlier, she is known as Pute Girl and she wants to redeem herself. Is there anything about that storyline that, that you felt like stuck out and was really poignant or is it just a nice kind of, uh, you know, a nice like, third story that's kind of happening in the background that you know adds to the film i think there's one thing that it does really really well that i loved uh and this does get to the end of the film though honestly if you're the kind of person who's worried about spoilers for teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem i don't know what to tell you um you're gonna be <laughs> fine i don't think i don't think doing certain plot beats uh the, the turtles are gonna get out of it in the end uh is gonna really get in the way of your uh enjoyment here but, you know, one of the big things, right, is we, we talked about that viral incident of vomiting on camera, right? She, she's puke girl. 
um, and it's on her locker, and it's a whole thing. And she has this fear of being put on camera as a result. She says regularly, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to write now. I'm not going to get in camera. I don't ever want to be in front of camera again. And, like, fair. Um, as someone who has done a lot of writing and uh, still feels a little uncomfortable in front of a camera, I get it. Um, but, of course, at the end of the film, she needs to go on and correct the record of these, this, you know, news channel that is reporting that the turtles are, are bad guys that need to be stopped. And so she is forced to get on camera and she does her spiel. And then she pukes a little bit. And I thought that was really, really smart because so many fucking films, right, would just pave over that character concern, right? When the pressure's on, she does it perfectly. She no longer has that fear. It's fine now, right? It's a nice, clean ending to that narrative arc. And this film says, actually, no, she still has stage fright. This is going to be a problem for her. It's a thing that she has, but she powered through it anyway because it mattered, because it was worth powering through, because it was worth pushing for. And it doesn't matter if she embarrasses herself a little bit because she tried. And then the next time, it's going to get a little bit easier. And the next time, it's going to get a little bit easier because that's how this actually works in the real world, right? None of us get over a fear the second time. It's like these are phobias that you work through and you talk through and you prepare yourself for. And sometimes you screw up again and that's okay. And I thought it was a really, really nice touch to allow April to overcome her anxiety without removing anxiety from the equation. She's still anxious. She's still scared. She still has that instinct. She does it anyway. To me, that's so much more powerful and interesting from a character motivation and from a character's actions than just giving her the free wing. So I really love that they did that. Yeah, it, it shows growth, but it doesn't show you know, completion of the course, right? Okay, cool. You passed the first test. You did the thing the first time. Now it's repetitive. It's you have to keep trying. You have to keep doing it because there is always like a backslide too. Like the second time she goes on camera, she might throw up again, right? And it, it, it builds that in because humans are imperfect creatures. Interesting. Weird, right? Bold. It's almost like we're not all the same. And it's our differences that make us unique and interesting and individuals. So I, I agree. I, you know, that's that you point that out. Like, actually, yeah, that is, that's a nice little touch. That is, that is something on my viewing, I think sort of just like passed me by. Um, and there are, there like are a number of moments of these sort of um, redemption arcs. Right. And we're talking about, uh, you know, redemption of Leonardo, right? Like he's trying to be, I'm not going to say the older brother because they're. I don't think they ever go like, oh yeah, one's older than the other. But he's trying to be like the leader and he's like failing at it. He's making these bad decisions and like the guys are making fun of him and be like, why would we listen to you? Like you're taking, getting groceries too serious and then gets to a point where like, no, he is a leader and everybody's going to listen to him and he's using the, the other mutants and his brothers to their best skills, right? And he's encouraging them and it's is being a leader and is taking that mantle, which again is another like really nice moment of character growth in what is a relatively black and white hundred minute movie. 
Um, you know, I, I would say like the other three don't really have too much in terms of like massive character development. It really is like Donatello, um, April and, and Splinter are really kind of like the three characters that really do have these like massive, uh, you know, not massive, but this character growth that then leads us to the end of the film chase, because there is a mid credit scene in this film because God damn it. You know, every movie has, it's so ridiculous. I was sitting there at Oppenheimer through the credits and being like, wait, why am I sitting here? There's no fucking way there's going to be a mid or end credit scene to Oppenheimer. Like, are you fucking dumb? <laughs> and we get this mid credit scene and we get uh, the, uh, we get uh, Cynthia Altrum, who's the, the executive of the, the super evil science company saying send in shredder and we get a tease of a second movie with shredder because i don't know how you could have a teenage mutant ninja turtles movie without shredder yeah are you I'm intrigued in i'm intrigued you know i'm i i would say it was the the thing that i think we all saw coming right if you were going to do a teenage mutant ninja turtles sequel of course shredder is going to be a part of it It'll be very interesting to see like what the next version of Shredder looks like. It seems like he's going to be caught up in this like you know this super secretive uh, corporation that's responsible for all the science experiments and capturing the turtles at one point. Um, but that was very clearly set up, and it, it sounds like there's going to be a TV series as well on Paramount Plus because of course. Um, so it's. You know, it, it 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 is the thing that needed to happen in order to get to the next part of the narrative, um, and I have no problem with it. I'm ultimately just kind of curious, like, how do you make Shredder a threat when you have not just the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but all of these historic enemies theoretically on their side, right? Like... They're not just the four of them. There are like eight other mutants that they've now teamed up with, all of whom should be competent in their own right. And there's one Shredder. So I don't know how they're going to play it, but I'm sure that they have plans. And, you know, as long as they keep up the art style the way it is and the writing stays to a, a solid level of quality, I'm willing to give it another shot. sure cool um yeah like yeah it, again it was weird that they had a, a teenage mutant ninja turtle movie and didn't have shredder in it at all because i mean again i'm not as i'm not as well connected to this from my childhood as you certainly are but i i don't really remember teenage mutant ninja turtles without shredder <laughs> if i'm gonna be very honest like okay yeah i remember that i remember uh uh rocksteady and bebop but other than that like i I didn't remember any of these other characters so yeah cool we'll see um i man i i feel i like can't say more because it gets into my like final kind of thoughts so chase ultimately where did you end up on this film your final score your final thoughts what did you think uh i'm gonna give this one an eight out of ten um obviously like we're judging this among like kids action movies right so you know not all eight out of tens are, are equal but I think this did everything that it needed to do. Um, it had a really fun and interesting art style that I was happy to watch and 
could have easily watched another hour of. I think there was a lot of heart in the writing, and I think they did everything they needed to do narratively to get something that would connect with kids. Did it have as much depth as I would have liked? Probably not. Um, Are there some references that I think you could have cut out and put in more time for more interesting things? Sure. But those are trappings of the genre, and I can't penalize something too harshly for being the thing that it is. I, I ultimately try to grade these films by what they're trying to be. As far as what this film sets its aspirations for and what it accomplishes, I think it does a great job. I think that's a, a big thing for me is understanding the context, right? And as I was watching the film, uh, there's like moments where I was kind of like, yeah, okay, rolling my eyes at this. Like, okay, yeah, cool. Oh, yeah, I like I like Mondo Gecko. Like, yeah, abracadabra, bro. Like, like there's some fun stuff. I really liked Ice Cube as Superfly. Like, he felt intimidating and imposing and exactly how I think Ice Cube would be like in real life. Um, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, it's, it's a kid's movie, right? And I'm not saying that negatively. I'm saying that because that is what it is. Just like The Revenant was Oscar bait, right? It is what it is. And I have to, to try and judge it based on that. I have to try and judge it based on the fact, hey, this film isn't meant for me. Someone that doesn't have, you know, this this childhood established relationship with TMNT or that doesn't have kids that he's taken to this, right? Part of the reason Ice Cube apparently did this role is because of the attachment him and his son had to the characters. That's why he decided, yeah, I'll take this role. Like, I don't have those kind of things, so I just kind of have to judge it at face value. Um, and, and like, yeah, it's like a seven out of 10. Like, it's not awful. It's not a terrible movie. Uh, I'd say probably like the art really bumps it up from like a six and a half or a six to a seven because it is so cool and it is so different. And, and, you know, the only other thing that I can even go like is, is remotely close to it is, um, is, uh, uh, Spider-Man, um, into the Spider-Verse. But even then, like, it's not the same. Like, I can't just say, oh yeah, they're the same because they both had different art styles. Like, no, but it, but it's like, I am rewarding them for that. They, they went out and they did something really cool looking, right? And visually appealing and visually interesting. And, you know, Chase sent me this screenshot from um, the, the camera as he was talking about like the record button earlier. And like, I just noticed the screen is cracked. Like there's yeah. a crack in the screen. And like, I'm like, ah, I didn't notice that in theaters. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's a seven out of 10. It's a kid's movie or I, or it's a movie for someone that like really, really, really loves Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And is like, yeah, like I want to remember my childhood. I went and saw this at like 1045 in the morning on a Sunday, right? Like I, I just went, cause I was like, I got to see it. I got to quote unquote, get it out of the way. Cause we're going to podcast about it. So I just like picked a random time on a Sunday and was like, yeah, I'm going to get this out of the way while Melissa... My partner is um, is doing some errands and stuff. And like, it, it did remind me of like Saturday morning cartoons. It was kind of cool to be like in the theater with some, some M&Ms and just be like, oh yeah, it kind of reminds me of watching cartoons on a Sunday morning. Um, but yeah, it's a seven out of 10. It's a kid's movie. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's just not like, it's not, it is not the pinnacle of cinema. If you're looking for something that is cinema, this is not it. This is not it, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And Chase, 
There's also nothing wrong with this podcast and following you on the interwebs. Where can the good folks at home find you? can find me at chase wasson or on twitter you can find the podcast at rough drafts pod would love to hear what you thought of our uh teenage mutant ninja turtles revival here uh if you've had a chance to see it or of you know hear your thoughts on any of the the films that we've watched or games that we've played on the steam cleaners podcast which we do every week we're not doing this uh starting next week we are mixing things up with our standard formula um in a way that i think will be really fun might lead to some shorter episodes but hopefully some very fun episodes so uh be sure to to check that out and uh see you back for more movie things in two weeks absolutely uh we have a couple of fun episodes of steam cleaners coming up uh that's because we know what the next uh next couple are about and i have played two of the next three games that we're playing uh that we're going to talk about so um be on the lookout for that uh you guys can follow me uh on twitter at c80s underscore lol and you guys can follow me on blue sky i got a blue sky code c80s.bsky.social i i I haven't really used it yet because like i have to figure out all the people i want to follow from like my current like from my twitter and, and head over there and We'll figure that out one day. Chase, I have invite codes. I'll send you one. Take me with you. Take me with I'm you. I'm taking you away. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but speaking of taking away, uh, the next film we are going to talk about also is going to take people away with a little blue thing, right? Because all social media is blue. The thing that happens in this film is also blue. If you can't figure out what we're talking about by now, I can't come up with anything better other than telling you the name of the movie. So we'll see you in two weeks with our something blue. And until then, goodbye, Internet.